a consummate athlete seeks health, community, and adventure through movement. And here on the podcast, longtime endurance coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford and author and cycling coach Molly Herford are helping you lead your best active, adventurous life. Every week, we talk with professional athletes, health and fitness experts, and of course, real-life consummate athletes. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hey guys, hope you liked that new intro to the consummate athlete. If you did, make sure to give Peter a shout out for finally honing his, uh, his intro. Well, I mean, I think I've been demoted somewhat, but we'll see. A little cleaner. We've maybe settled on that one, so let us know if we're, we're closer to the definition. Anyway, today's guest is actually a repeat guest. Uh, we have sports scientist Steven Seiler. This is Mr. Polarized, as I'll call him. I call Frank Overton Mr. Sweet Spot, so Mr. Polarized. Uh, but he is the man who coined the term polarized, some of this 80-20 training, this idea of training easy or you know pretty hard. Uh, so we do talk about that. But if you missed our first episode with him, we just re-released it around Christmas time, 2019. Uh, so that was one of our most popular episodes. He's a super interesting guy to talk to. And he's always training and himself, right? Which I think is what I like about him is that he's always putting out what he's up to, you know, training challenges, training questions. And he's there. So he's actually found Zwift since the last time. So this is online sort of platform of bike riding indoors. Now we should note, last time we talked to him was 2017. It was a re-release around Christmas yes, in 2019. Yes, it was one of the So episodes. he did not just find Zwift like in early 2020. He's been on Zwift. He's a for, regular. Yeah. 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 So he's found it. But now conveniently with our the, the crisis of everyone being self-isolated with the coronavirus uh, at this present time here in March 2020, uh, it's become sort of the choice go-to. He So we talk about how there's like an influx of people there and, and sort of those challenges. Um, but this episode we thought was going to be timely because he is into Zwift. And so we talk a little about best practices for indoor riding in general. Um, what else do we go into? I mean, honestly, it's really interesting hearing him kind of reapplying a lot of what he's talked about with the, you know, uh, his hierarchy of endurance training needs. And it sort of always comes back to the same idea that the way to make the most gains isn't necessarily the sexy way or, you know, any like new fat or even any one like secret workout or interval or anything. It's really about showing up and, you know, putting in the, the 80% to make the 20% work well right, as well. Right. And that's the, the base of his hierarchy of needs, which we discussed in the last one is this idea of volume and sort of just putting in a lot of lower intensity, not easy as we talk about, but lower intensity training. Um, and we'll also link in the show notes to his Ted talk, which he did, I think just in late 2019 as well, and it was essentially about no pain, no gain, and this idea that you'll always have to be, you know, falling over sideways, and every session has to be maximal, right? Yeah, and right now, by the way, he says no one should be crawling out of their basement after his Zwift ride. Right, and that seems to be the common recommendation, right, is keeping something in the tank, almost maintaining a bit, but we talk about how you can make progress and some of your limiters still without without doing that, and we talk a bit about some, some case studies or some uh, you know ideas around that. Uh, I think finally we talk about his fairly popular set of studies looking at sort of a couple different uh, interval sets, so 4x4, 4x8, 4x16, uh, and how that might be a guide for, you know, a base training in general, but also sort of this period where we're not really sure when the next races will be, or they're at least very far off in the distance. So this idea of still using polarized training, mostly low intensity training, building our endurance, but then some very focused sessions, you know, once or twice maybe during the week. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, uh, since I feel like we we feel like we know Steven at this point because we kind of interact with him on the internet so much lately that we really just dive right into it with this episode. Um, we just kind of get started and yeah, uh, we hope you enjoy it. Let us know if you have any more questions you'd love to hear Steven answer. Yeah. In maybe a future episode, any excuse to get him to come back and talk with us is always a, a good time. Yeah, enjoy this conversation with Steven Seiler. So we were super excited to, to get to chat with you again because, I mean, you've been one of our, our most popular episodes to date and uh, we thought it was particularly good timing since we know how into Zwift you've gotten and it seems like everyone and their mother is now on there. So That's true. It was- it's, it's amazing. <laughs> and I, I'm seeing the difference just in the last month of the number of people online at the same time. It's, it's maybe, I would say, on average, at least doubled, maybe even tripled. It's, it's just crazy. Um, and so this is Peter speaking now, too, so I don't know uh, if Molly... I, I thought, well, that was quite a voice change. <laughs> yeah. Not to scare well, you or anything, but... Really working on so so we've been finding when we're out and stuff that, you know, everyone's out walking and running. So now on Zwift, are you seeing a negative to the amount of people participating in, in cycling virtually? No, not at all. It's, it's exploded. Okay. Um, because... Uh, you got to see, you know, even professional cyclists in, in Europe, they are shut down. They can't go out on group rides. The entire season is is on the, you know, has been scrapped. Um, and so everyone's looking for uh, a way to, number one, to get some kind of stimuli. Uh, you know, the train, you can do the training, but they also want to have interaction. They want to, you know, race they want to be in a group and, and Zwift is I think filling at least a little bit of that void now Zwift's not the only virtual environment I should be careful to say that because it sounds like I'm just uh, giving Zwift all the uh, advertising but but they are one of the most popular and they seem to have done a lot of things right but there are other environments there are other kind of approaches to this that are more uh, 3D video based and st- stuff like that. So there's different ways and people are using this for all it's worth. Plus a lot of runners, a lot of triathletes and runners and even swimmers, they cannot do all of the modalities that they normally would do. The swimmers are locked out of the pools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I, I just did a, I've done a survey just this last week. Uh, I created a uh, online survey um, just kind of looking at the transition from outdoor to indoor and how it was influencing both exercise modality but but also intensity the duration of the longest uh, workouts the weekly volume and so forth and clearly one of the main things is, is that you know it's it's cycling 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 because that is the easiest modality to make work indoors Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually just interviewing a bunch of pro runners on how they're handling it. And that one question I asked was like, what are you going to do if exercise outside is, you know, no longer an option? And funny enough, most of them were like, oh, I just bought like an exercise bike or like, oh, I found a stationary trainer for my bike. Or yeah, everyone's right. shifting to bikes, I guess, because it's easier to buy a quick trainer or like a yeah trainer for your bike and throw yeah. it on versus buying a treadmill at this point. Right. Yeah. The footprint is smaller. Uh, the cost is lower and the technology is quite good, you know, the, because you get the power, you get the, you can have heart rate, you can have the virtual environment. So there's been a, just a technological, um, quantum leap in the last couple of years. And it's now everyone's, you know, 
catching on and saying, oh, wow, I can do this, you know. So that's that's kind of where we're at. And, uh, uh, you know, plus you, on Zwift, you can race. You can do something. You can choose a, a, a ride and test yourself, you know. And I think people need to also blow off steam right now. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Yeah. Have you found, you know, again, a few years ago when we had you on, you were just maybe starting to learn about it. And um, you, I, I don't think, and I, maybe I'm misrepresenting this, but, um, you know, since you've started using it more in your own training, have you found as far as like best practices or, or mistakes people are making or you made yourself? Uh, yeah. The, well, it's, it's the classic. It's the same mistakes people make training outdoors in groups. And that is that you know, half wheeling is it's 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 also a thing in virtual cycling, uh, and, and group rides that are supposed to be low intensity for two hours at two point five watts per kg end up you know they start you know at two five and end up at three four and and uh, so it is unfortunately it's it's all the same things that tend to happen outdoors in a group with a bunch of guys at least happen indoors on a virtual platform with a bunch of guys uh so you just have to be disciplined you have to know what your goal what your goal is for the day and stick to it and it's really easy to start chasing squirrels as we say you know you right. someone goes, someone passes you or there's some king of the mountain segment or or a sprint segment you know there's always a temptation to accelerate, to increase the power, and rarely a temptation to slow down. Right. Yeah, and you say, what you're saying, you say uh, plan the work and work the plan, I believe. Is that, am I misrepresenting that? Yeah, yeah. That's, it wasn't my words, but that's, that's what it comes down to is uh, if we're going to, you know, especially now when you're kind of stuck in this situation, if you don't create a bit, you know, hold on to some structure in your training, then uh, it, it very quickly ends up being every workout is pretty hard. You know, you really quickly fall into that uh, kind of almost racing every day. Uh, right. on and I have appreciated, you know, I coach uh, a lot of cyclists, a lot of, you know, master's age cyclists, and a lot of them really like Zwift or um, Trainer Road or these different platforms. Mm-hmm. So I do. I, I learn a fair bit through them and, you know, design workouts for it and stuff. But I also appreciate all the, the insights you've given through Twitter and uh, the different uh, platforms you have about using it. Um, the one idea I really liked you ha- that you had and seemed to use a lot for your lower intensity sessions is you just enter a group ride that has a, a lower uh, power to weight, right? Oh, absolutely. I do rides with, you know, I, in, based on my so-called functional threshold power, I'm a B. Uh, so I race with the B's uh, and the A's occasionally, but I do the low intensity stuff with the D's and the C's. Right. Uh, and so I, yeah, I use the different groups for all they're worth to try to, you know, make sure that I'm doing what I intend to do. And then you, and it's it's like everything else is there's variation. If you find, you know, on Zwift you have these different group rides that are you know uh, organized, and you have leaders of these group rides, and and some of the leaders are just really good at keeping keeping the pace. It's just like outside. Yeah, and other leaders have something to prove, and and they, you know, and they take off like like a banshee. So um, you just have to kind of shop a little bit and find you know, the group rides that stick to their advertised power 
if your goal is to you know be at 2.3 watts per kg or whatever then you just find the ones that do what they say they're going to do and uh, and then the other is and I, and I have a hard time with this myself the other is though if you get in a group and it doesn't go as advertised you can just drop out you know and, and ride on your own so you, you don't have to you know it doesn't have to be a failed workout or a chaos you can just say well this isn't working and and push a button and go somewhere else and it's not nearly as embarrassing as doing that on the actual <laughs> road with a group of people who know you that's right so so you know you really you know you have no excuse for not working your plan uh, if you really want to. Uh, and, and I say that as a person that can easily fall into these traps. I mean, I like to, I like to rev it up and go sometimes myself. So uh, I'm not speaking, you know, I'm not the preacher here. I, I am, <laughs> I'm one of the, the sinners. Uh, but, uh, you know, at least I, I have learned a bit about how to avoid it. And the other thing is, at least for me, I do different things in order to help avoid the psychological, uh, what should I say, temptation of going too hard on an easy day. For example, number one, I use, I'll like listen to audio books. So I'm kind of the stimuli I'm getting in my head is, <laughs> is, is chill. You know, right. <laughs> the music I listen to is relaxed. Uh, and, but also just, um, I may even put myself on a mountain bike. I've started doing that recently so that I kind of, have an excuse for going slow, you know. <laughs> so I'm riding on the road, but I'm on a on a virtual mountain bike, which goes slower than the road bike. So when people pass me, I don't care. Oh, interesting. You know, so, so you change the virtual bike that you're still on the same bike actually, but the virtual bike is slower than right, you're on. Interesting. Right. So the virtual bike is 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 governed down to a slower speed. The watts are the watts, but it just kind of like. It's it's kind of like a, a visual statement. Hey, I'm I'm chilling today. You know. <laughs> Fair enough. So anyway, so there's different ways to deal with the psychology of all this. I think. And, uh, but the but the other thing about this is is that when we are indoors, on these trainers, there's a there are some differences compared to outside. One of the things we're seeing because I, I collect a lot of data files from riders from all the way from professional to amateur. You know. Uh, I've got camp data from pro tour athletes and so forth. And invariably, there is a ton of uh, zero, basically zero watt coasting time during outdoor rides. Mm -hmm. You know, because when you're in a big group and, and they're moving at high speed, uh, you know, you, you don't even think about it, but there's lots of little micro pauses that you're taking, little breaks as you're sitting on the wheel of people where you're not doing, you're not producing a watt of power. Um, and when you add all that up and when you're going downhill, if you're doing a lot of climbing and stuff, uh, it may add up to over 20% of a ride of your ride time. Uh, at least when I see these files, 20, 23, 24, even For 25. sure it would. Yeah. So, and when you're indoors doing a three hour steady state on the erg, on the ergo, you know, there's zero dead time. Right. And so, in a, the density that, you know, just the metabolic flux and the training density is actually higher uh, on these indoor rides. Um, now, I don't think we've ever done a research project to compare like training effects and so forth 
that would account for all this, but I don't think it's unreasonable to think that you know these these five hour rides that the pro tour guys, six hour rides they do outdoors, from a standpoint of just metabolic signal, they may be able to achieve in you know with an hour less or two hours less indoors. You know, yeah. when they're doing four hour steady state indoors versus six outdoors because you know outdoors they're taking a lunch break. Well, and coasting down a mountain or something too, and, and as you say, drafting or, or whatever with stop signs. And Of course, I don't know, like I get kind of scared about this concept because I worry that people are going to hear that and be like, oh good, I can just do all of my training inside and then show up at a like Cat 3 race. Right. Uh, I, I think... <laughs> the, the skill of danger to not going out and drafting and not descending and stuff is... Uh, well, now I gotta say something about that because that is an interesting thing you bring up. I can way back, back in the year two thousand one, I believe there was a publication by a group called or two guys named Schumacher and Mueller, where they studied the world record group, the group that set the new world record on the track for the four thousand meter team pursuit. I don't know if you know track cycling, but one of the events is a four thousand meter event for athletes you know they are tight as can be going mm -hmm. as hard as they can go and at that time the barrier was the 60 kilometer per hour average if, to get under four minutes so it was this german team they went first time under four minutes in 2000 now now the world record is like 343 or 344 so it's you know continued to progress but then it they they got it under four minutes for the first time and they they wrote this research paper now the point of all this is to say that during the year prior you know leading up to that world record on the track where everything is super technical these athletes only were on the track like 20 days okay out of 365 now, why was that? Well, because they had the technical skills. They've been cycling for 20 years. You know, mm -hmm. They were highly skilled riders. So the point is, is that you know, our, our, our highly skilled riders that are off the bike right now and they're on the trainer, it's not like they're going to lose all their skill. Mm -hmm. it, it is so ingrained. It's so built into their motor, their neurological system that that stuff is going to come back fast and they really don't have to be you know on the road racing all the time to have those skills the ones that are more at risk are the newbies that need that training outdoors but aren't getting it you know the people who are learning bike handling that are missing maybe a season of motor development of technical development that that would be an issue for them but it's not really that big a deal for the for the guys or and women that are already there mm -hmm. and i think especially in the disciplines like your triathlon or um, track is probably similar like yes very technical very high speed but essentially once you've figured out how to ride on that person's wheel like it, it's not dissimilar in a lot of ways from that trainer environment um you know it's have you, are you familiar with Lionel Sanders? He's a Ironman triathlete. 
no, I don't think I know. I, maybe I should. Uh, maybe. It depends, I guess. Right, pretty um, fast. But he, he trains a lot on, like, indoors for all three sports. Um, like, he spends yeah. a lot of the year in Tucson, uh, Arizona. But he, yeah, like, both all three sports. Like, he has a pool, like, infinite pool thing in his basement. Yeah. Um, uses Zwift. Um, and and I feel he's like that's making his, that's he, his party trick. I'm it, just it is, say. but he makes the argument that like it's just so efficient, right? And he can work on right. form and analyze everything and do the you know perfect splits or whatever. But then yeah, like is that for Ironman? Is that the you know you just well I, I I get it. I get the I get the idea of it because it is you can be very efficient uh, and and along the way historically there have been athletes even before all of this high technology. If you take Ingrid Christensen, who had the five world records in distance running from Norway, she did a lot of training on a treadmill, mm-hmm. and she did it precisely for that reason. This was back in the seventies and eighties. You know, but she would run on the treadmill because she had perfect control. When she wanted to do high intensity sessions or threshold, she she knew exactly where she was at, and she had that infinite hill or the infinite stretch or whatever it was that she needed to have to achieve the goals of her training. So, um, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the psychology of, of it. Some people just need the stimuli of being outdoors. Others can just get inside their head and uh, you know and go, and so they can they can be very happy with with these kinds of almost sensory deprivation environments, you know. Right. But, yeah. But but really focused. Yeah, I've made the analogy that it's uh, the trainer is in a lot of ways like a like the batting cage in baseball. Like it's not baseball, but it's it's like an element of the sport and maybe a large element for some of these disciplines. What do you do? You think I'm on base with that or on base, ah. so to speak? Oh, <laughs> I'm leaving. No pun intended. Uh, well, again, I, I think it really depends on where the athlete is technically. Uh, if they are a mature a well-developed athlete that has the technical skills, it may be that the, the payoff for them to have really good training intensity control, at least some sessions of the week, can outweigh the technical, what should I call it, maintenance that they may be getting outdoors. And, so, and tactical, I guess, too, potentially. Yeah, and again, tactics, good racers, they, they know tactics. I mean, they are, it's not like you, oh, shoot, what were my tactics? They don't. Right. Mm-hmm. Stuff. This is in their brain. This is, you know, and, and I, I recently, just a couple of days ago, I, I got a nice email from a, a swim coach from Stanford, and, and he asked about some issues, because the swimmers in particular are really suffering. You know, they're yeah. not able to train. They're not able to do their modality at all. We're talking about trainers, uh, swimmers that were getting ready for the Olympics one day, and now they're, you know, they can't even get in the pool. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I wrote a little, you know, some things about this, and, and I tried to, in some ways, reassure them. I said, look, I, I, I know that swimmers are, you know, normally two days out of the water is like an eternity. Uh, but the reality is, is that you've taken millions of strokes. This is built into your neurological pathways. They're so these pathways are so well ingrained that you can take uh, an endurance athlete like a rower or a swimmer that's very you know these technical kinds of sports, 
and you can take them away from the pool or away from the water for 10 years and then you put them back on the water and they'll be rusty as can be for about 15 minutes but then it starts coming back and by the end of the first hour they're like oh yeah I got I got this you know because those motor pathways are still there mm-hmm. so I don't I don't think we need to be as afraid of losing technique, losing tactics, losing all that stuff, because the brain is really good at storing that information, and it's just a matter of recalling it. The fresh fruit that the, the athletes are losing is more, it's not what's going on up in the brain, it's what's happening down in the in the muscle fibers. It's, you know, they're, they're losing some mitochondria, they're losing, if they're not able to train. Right. So is that sort of the message you gave them that, you know, they sort of have this time where they might be detraining or, or did you sort of suggest maybe it's more like a, a general preparation period or how maybe that wasn't. Yeah, well, yeah. In terms of the swimmers, what I recommended was I said, look, number one, maintain the rhythm of your training because you've built a kind of a chronobiological rhythm into your training routine. Uh, your hormonal routine, you know, your, your body has has these cycles, and most swimmers are training twice a day, maybe even three if they add in a strength session, but they're at least typically doing a double, you know, twice daily training. And so that rhythm is there, and what I said is continue that rhythm. Even if you're on a bike, even if you're on a treadmill, even if, you know, if you're having to substitute all kinds of stuff, the training rhythm will serve you well, because when you get back onto the water, you'll still be in that rhythm. That's number one. Uh, and then the other was the second point was I said, look, cardiovascularly, in terms of just maintaining cardiac adaptations, maintaining blood volume and so forth, the running, the cycling, the rowing machine, whatever they have access to can do a great job in terms of basic cardiovascular fitness. But what they're going to, a swimmer, what they're going to be missing is that upper body uh, integration. Because when, when normally when you do upper body work, the cardiovascular system works pretty hard. Heart rate's higher, stroke volume is lower. There's just some differences. So they're missing out on that. They're not getting that. And how, do, how can they achieve it? One way would be to take a, the bike trainer, put it up on the table, and turn it into a hand bike. Cool. Uh, and get some, you know, get some upper body work there. Another great alternative, if you have access to it as a swimmer, I would say, is to find a Concept Two ski polling ergometer. It's my dream to have one of those. Oh you you used was... to do a lot of work. Do you do, still do work on one? I have one up. I just did a little bit, but I I, I spent a year on it because I had a, a big, a major leg injury. But now I'm cycling and I'm not doing it regularly. But it's a great machine it's a great ergometer and i would say it could be a great substitute for swimmers on dry land when they don't have access to their 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 you know it's not swimming i get that but it they can at least work the upper body they can work a lot of the same musculature either bilaterally or unilaterally um so uh, if they can do that i would that's what i would try to find is those plus they have a fairly small footprint because it's vertical, so you could actually have it in a, in a student apartment, which, you know, they're not necessarily very big. So that would be, those are the two thing recommendations, is 
if you need to try to get some upper body endurance stimuli, I think those are the two approaches I would go after. Hey, Peter, what does a registered kinesiologist and endurance coach do? Well, Molly, let me tell you, I work with busy people that want to do big, crazy adventures. You know, these are people who have kids, they have families, they have all sorts of work stuff they got to do, but they have big goals. They maybe want to do a big mountain bike race, 100 miler, something like Dirty Kanza. They might just want to keep up on the group ride. And all these things are really, really cool adventures and really good breaks from all the other stuff we have going on in our, in our busy lives, right? So I help people do that. And so I really like programming and finding ways that we can fit movement into their lives. Sometimes that involves, you know, consultation around movement or trying to work through some sort of injury. Uh, and sometimes it's just dealing with, you know, fitting stuff in and getting the work done. So that's what I do. I, I coach and I build training plans and, you know, that's, that's what a registered kinesiologist and endurance coach does in my case. And how can people get in touch with you if they're interested in, in well, chatting with you? You're on the consummate athlete podcast. You go to consummateathlete.com. You can find coaching links on that website. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. How are you thinking about these next few months, maybe with your, your daughter or with yourself or, you know, in general, as far as, um, like, are you thinking about it as a, a base phase or I know this is a right, really yeah. regular time, but how are you thinking about or explaining this in general then? I know you've done it a bit here yeah. for us, but. Well, you know, my training doesn't matter because I'm just an old dog that just plays around, but my daughter is a competitive distance runner and, and she, uh, like she ran a 116 half marathon and she's oh, been wow. running for a couple of years. So she's still, she's 21. And, and so she's in this phase where she's having a period of, you know, a good development. And we had these plans for the spring races. We were going to start with a kind of a base period where she did some strength and speed work connected with just good basic endurance. And then we transitioned into a, a very kind of half marathon specific uh, pace workouts and everything just went beautifully and she knocked uh, what was it five and a half minutes off her PB you know it was wow. uh, she just rocked uh, and then she comes home and then we go into lockdown and I have to say she kind of mentally fell apart naturally because you have all these plans you have all these goals and number one the half marathon recovery took longer than maybe she realized uh, then she deal, had to deal with some anemia issues, but the other was just a psychological, like, wait a minute, all my goals have now just dissolved. What do I do? So there was a psychological kind of a, a, a period of mourning that she had to go through. And I, I think bet. a lot of athletes have been going through that. Yeah. You know, they've been dealing with that. I've had all these plans and let's face it. Endurance athletes tend to be kind of, systematic kind of goal oriented you know everything gets you know they plan their work and work their plan and then when you take away all of these structure all this structure all of these plans then they feel like the anchor has just been has disappeared they don't know where they're going and uh so, so that's kind of the downside of being a highly goal oriented structured athlete is when is it's easy to get kind of rocked by uncertainty, by you know insecurity, or the uncertainty of the situation we're in right now. So, so there's there's some psychology there that we have to deal with. And once we got past all that, you know, then we say, okay, 
in the case of my daughter, I would use as the example, I know my daughter doesn't have a lot of speed reserve. She's not fast. As, you know, she doesn't have a, a good 200, 400 kind of speed, but I know that if I can, we can build her speed reserve, it will serve her well down the road as a distance runner. So then we say, yeah, let's take a few steps back. Let's, uh, we're not going to do so much race pace training, specific high intensity sessions. We're going to use that energy and pour it into kind of improving a, a, a hole in her development. And that is going to be some very you know specific hip strength uh, and then translating that to um, speed to, you know, and right. so, so that's what we're doing is we're just, we're using it as an extra build period and filling gaps. So I'm hearing you sort of had a, a morning period, you know, we all get to sulk for a little bit. Um, and then maybe even checking in on, on health, I think for all of us is a good uh, message, um, whether that's nutritionally or whatever. And then you're looking at sort of a point B as maybe like next year, future years, we still want to be this type of athlete, these type of goals. So that's sort of like in the distance, the goal. And then you're saying, what is a limit or what is something we can work on in our current situation? Does that jive with what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. We, we go through some mourning and then we, we suck it up and say, wait a minute, you know, this, this is temporary. Uh, this will go away and we will move on. We will race again. So let's start thinking about how to make lemonade out of lemons here and, and, and do some work that has a long-term payoff instead yeah. of being too much about the short-term goals. Hmm. Yeah, and I think we can only make decisions based on what we know right now, right? So I think I've been using the same messaging, you know, this temporary, but we only know what we know, right? And we can only do what we can do. Um, and I think it's it's hard right now to move past this, like, what ifs and, you know, will this ever and will this race cancel or come back or when is it? And we don't, we just don't know, right? And I think your, your approach makes perfect sense. You know, what can we do? What do we know? And, and what I've said to my daughter is I said, let's just assume that best case scenario, there are some races in the fall. Yep. You know, so we're not, because it's really easy to say, well, you know, they might have races in May and then May washes out. Well, what about June? Well, June's going to wash out, you know, so then you just end up kind of tripping along and, and, and constantly in a state of stress. I think it's better to err on the side of, what should I say, almost negativity and say, nah, look, folks, this season is not going to happen, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and let's, I, we're, at least with my daughter, we're just saying, look, right now, chill, just let's build strength, let's get your schoolwork done, finish your bachelor, reroute your energy a bit, stay healthy, and then we're going to kind of build momentum towards September. Right. Yeah, not rushing. Like I imagine you're not like really pushing any of these aspects like you might, you know, if there was no. more urgency, right? You're, you're going through, no. you're working on limiters, but you're not necessarily like just drilling in on them. No, because, you know, again, and I think especially with student athletes, look, they are under stress from all over the place right now. They're under economic stress, a lot of them. Uh, if you know, if they had side jobs, if they were helping to pay for their education, well, they've lost their jobs. If they they're under academic stress because they're having to do digital teach digital you know versions of everything, they're not. 
they're trying to figure all this stuff out and then they're under the the, the training stress so the stress is coming from from just a whole lot of change a whole lot of uncertainty not just in their training environment but in every part of their life yeah. so this is not the time to be busting your ass and and creating this huge stress with lots of hard intervals or whatever now's the time i told my daughter i think i use these words i said right now's the time to be kind to yourself i think that's great um and and because she you know she is very good at punishing herself uh and that serves her well when she's doing an interval session but it doesn't serve athletes well in a time of uncertainty in a time of of stress you know gear down give yourself a break uh is what i would say and then and then be reassured in the fact that number one a lot of that work you've done it there is a there is motor there is muscle memory you will come back fast there is all this motor pathway development your technique is not going to disappear you know these things fortunately you you will find that the, the the retraining process goes faster than the original training process if that makes sense for sure yeah um, I'm wondering, so you've done, uh, I think it actually ended up being a, a few different studies that came off of your comparing of the 4x4, 4x8, and 4x15, right? There was a, was it three studies that came out of that work? Yeah, we published several different uh, papers yeah. off that. And we've done a couple of different versions of that intervention, yeah, 4, 4, 4, 4 8, and 416. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're great, and I know they've gotten lots of attention. You're probably getting tired of talking about them, I guess. Um <laughs> What I'm wondering is, like, if someone was going to say, you know, I maybe not in this current situation, but say someone's going into sort of their, their base build period, they want to follow polarized, would you agree? Like, if someone was just like, you know what, it seems like it doesn't really matter, I'm just going to keep it simple, and I'm going to use that sort of model um, of those, that sort of as laid out in that study, would you agree or disagree with that as just sort of a, you know, if someone's not, you know, obviously necessarily going for the Olympics, but how, how would you feel about that, I guess? Yeah, in general, at least the feedback I've gotten from a lot, you know, because I have this Twitter yeah. group and I'm, I'm coming up on 11,000. So I've kind of got a, uh, a fairly good cross-section of athletes. And I get a lot of feedback that says, yeah, you know, those eight-minute intervals, that they work quite well for me because I, I do them, they're tough, but I can recover and work out the next day. And, and so this, I think, is one of the fundamental aspects of having the helicopter view of training. Uh, in some of the lectures I've given, you know, I've talked about, I said, I asked people, how many sessions will you train this year? How many different training sessions will you have? And, of course, that number for even age groupers is in the hundreds, 200, 250, 300. For elites, it's closer to 600. You know, so that is an, a huge number of individual stimuli and it's the it's the summation of all that that rec that creates the athlete we are it's not the one epic workout uh, but we get caught up in these single workouts and and so what what people say is look when I do quality work like you know four times eight or they can even do five or you know even extend those interval sessions but hold the intensity a little bit lower so that they you know don't just flood with blood lactate you know they recover quicker 
Yeah. And then, and that, when you multiply that times weeks and months and years, you get more quality training. You get you're healthier. You're it's more sustainable. And so, I think right now, just as always, we want to find a sustainable balance between the different intensities, the different training uh, durations, and so forth. It's it's about making sure that we don't go so deep in the hole on the one workout that it actually has knock-on effects that end up giving us a negative consequence for the week, if that makes sense. Sure it does, yeah. So are you saying then that you would, you're would you shying away from I know the 4x8 is the one that's gotten a lot of attention. Um, yeah. The 4x4 people often went too deep. It was a harder feeling session, yeah. um, higher lactate and that stuff. So you find that you're, you trend mostly towards the 4x8 or, or people in yeah, general? Yeah, in that range. Now, there's nothing magic about 4x8. Uh, don't get me wrong, but what I think if there's a quote magic, it has to do with once you're well trained, you need quite a few minutes of stimuli. Yep. So, and and so, you're. It seems like the body responds better to collecting or or managing to accumulate pretty tough minutes at say ninety percent, and and. And actually being able to accumulate maybe 40 minutes at that, you, you know, five times eight or something, or 30 to 40 minutes, versus accumulating 15 minutes at 95%. Right. And that's that trade-off that seems to work pretty well from a restitution standpoint, psychologically, you know, once we start thinking about what am I going to be able to sustain week after week. Now, classic periodization, this is more of a coaching, I guess, philosophy um, as much as anything. But like, you know, Joe Friel or that sort of philosophy of, of periodization would go maybe like a, you know, they he used a lot of threes, but say four by eight, four by 10, four by 12, four by 15 over, you know, this could be a whole base period. Um, have you seen that or, or what's, what's your feeling about trying to do something like that over a, a general preparation period? Well, I think it's useful to think in terms of uh, maybe four-week blocks sure. where you maybe have three weeks up and one week down. There's different rhythms. Depends on. Some have argued that if in, in age groupers doing relatively low volumes, you might have three week where you go two up, one down, and then you you know for more advanced they may go three up, one down. And, but but a bit of undulation. Uh, in the volume and, and you know the load, I think is is healthy. I, the body needs a bit of um, variation. Uh, I think that's part of the reason the eighty twenty works. <laughs> but also, so you have variation on different scales. You have the day to day variation, but you also have a bit of variation in the weekly loading, and and you need a bit of unloading. So that I think that needs to continue. Right. Um, and then you're going to kind of stack these four-week blocks on top of each other um, with the goal of achieving some specific, you know, focus, whether it's, you, you might say, well, you know, look, my, my threshold power is, is 15 watts below where I want it to be, and I'm going to kind of redouble my efforts to build there, and I'm not going to worry too much about anaerobic capacity, for example. Right. So, so these are the things, and, and I, I think right now in this situation we're in where there's a lot of uncertainty, that's the kind of trade-off I would recommend is I would say, look, guys, don't. there's not a lot of point 
in trying to maintain your anaerobic capacity. You know, because it's fresh fruit. Number one, uh, it, it doesn't take long to build up again. Right. It it disappears fast, and it is really costly to do for your body. So just wait. You know, on that. That's that's kind of those peaking workouts that a distance uh, trainer might do. Uh, the repeat 400s or something like that, you know, that you really are working hard. Hey, you can do two or three weeks of that and come into peak form, but good grief, what's the point in doing it in April? Right, or, or no right now. Races. Yeah, yeah. when you have no races to, to use it on. So I would not invest training energy in that real, those temporary peaking fresh fruit kinds of adaptations. I would invest it in the more base, you know, the, the, the diesel motor part of your fitness instead of the turbo. Gotcha. Um, so from there, then I guess, why don't, so the, the important thing I think in, in the study actually is that, uh, and in your philosophy is that there's, yes, there's these workouts, but the, what's surrounding these workouts is actually easier. Low, low intensity is probably a better way to put it. Um, Workouts. Yeah, so so yeah. you've been looking a yeah, lot I, I at definitely what, agree. You've been looking at what easy is recently. Um, so can you tell us a bit about like how someone you know would define their their easy or their aerobic threshold? Right. Yeah. So in a laboratory, we would of course do an incremental kind of step test, and we would be able to identify these so-called turn points where lactate goes from 1, 1 1.0, 1.1, 1.2, and then pops up to 1.8 or 2, and then we say, oh, there's that first lactate turn point. And then we go a little farther and we get a second turn point, maybe often around 4 millimolar. And so that's how, that's the typical lab testing. Well, now we don't have access to that, and most people don't anyway. So the question has been, in the last year or so, is, well, how do I guesstimate or estimate that first turn point, you know, where that intensity is, whether, whether I'm running or cycling. And one of, I think, there's different kinds of hacks you can kind of use. One, the, the most physiological, I would say, is, is cardiac drift, heart rate drift. Um, if you're a reasonably well-trained endurance athlete and you are training below the first threshold, the first turn point, then your heart rate from, say, 20 minutes into a steady state run to 60 minutes should basically be flat. Right. Okay? You should not see that heart rate continuing to drift up. Uh, now, this obviously assumes you're not running on a 90 degree Fahrenheit day, you know, in the sun, you know, and, and, and getting cooked. But if you have good cooling, you know, it's moderate temperatures and so forth, then you should see at that pace, you should have a, a flat heart rate response once you've warmed up, once you, your core temperature has stabilized. And I usually say 15, 20 minutes. So from 15 to 20 to 60, you should see basically no further heart rate increase if, you're, if your running speed or cycling power is constant. If you're seeing drift, that's a good indicator you're actually above that turn point. Now, if you, even if you are at a, an intensity that is 
clearly below your lactate, your first lactate threshold, but you go long enough, you will eventually see a, a crack in your heart rate. It'll start to drift up. And often it kind of happens fairly abruptly. I've got lots of ride and run files from athletes in marathons, in training sessions, and so forth, where heart rate is super stable for 90 minutes, and then just, you know, you see this, this shift, and heart rate starts drifting up. And it's probably related to glycogen depletion, to uh, having to recruit additional motor units, you know, muscle right. fibers, to, you know, a lot of physiology is going on, but then the stress of even that low intensity session, it gets higher. And we know that cortisol starts going up, perceived exertion goes up. So the point is, is really there's never a true steady state in, in, in exercise. You know, we always talk about, well, steady state versus not steady state. But in reality, we're constantly deteriorating to a certain extent during even these long runs and rides. But with training, that rate of deterioration, that durability that the athlete has, the tolerance for running at 65, 75% of max, it gets much better. And this is such an important adaptation. It is, I would almost say, the foundation on which everything else gets built is that uh, base of aerobic durability. Uh, and it, you really see it once you start, you know, looking at athletes that are well trained and how long they can go at 65% versus athletes that are reasonably, you know, poorly trained. They just don't have the variability, the, the durability. Right. And what do you, you know, the the common thing with all of this is always, you know, oh, it's too slow. It doesn't feel like a workout. Um, how how do you usually handle that with people as they're starting up? Well, you know, I, I got to be honest with you. I've just gotten so much feedback from age groupers, from people that say, I was stagnated for four years and I switched up my training and now finally I got a PR again. That it, folks, it works. I, <laughs> right. I hate, you don't I have mean, to I, sell it. It works. I, I, yeah, I, I'm just telling you guys, it works. I, and I didn't invent it. I, I just kind of saw what was the best people were doing, and I'm trying to understand why. But, but uh, the feedback is just clear for me. You know, they, I, I get emails every day. Uh, but you have to have a little bit of patience. You have to kind of develop that intensity discipline. And, and people, I even, another thing that I get a lot of comments on, they're saying, you know what, I'm enjoying training again. Yeah. Well, we just were talking to a, a physiotherapist uh, from Toronto here, and he, he runs and he does some gymnastics and stuff, but very, you know, he's mostly a physiotherapist. And he was saying, after all these years, he was racing 5Ks, and then he had put out about, you know, sort of running easier and how do people even do this. Um, and he said he actually just put in, what was it, three weeks? Three four? months, maybe? I don't maybe whichever he put in a little bit of time here and just was really disciplined walked a bit um, and he said he's running super it's super enjoyable he hasn't felt this good running in years and his his 5k time without doing any intensity has gotten faster yeah it's, it's I, sometimes I read the stuff and I'm like I'm even surprised I was like wow you know, this is really it makes sense <laughs> yeah but but it, it does 
does work. You know? Well, it's all aerobic, right? And I think that's hard for people to understand because, you know, we're talking about four by eights. We're talking about a 5K race, but it, it's all largely aerobic. It's all coming from that, that energy system, right? That's right. And, and I think that is unfortunately one of the true, what should I say, true misnomers in physiology is the concept of anaerobic. Right switch like a switch between threshold and this idea that we are so going so anaerobic that is just so wrong right it is so meta it's such a, a false picture of how exercise metabolism actually is look is what it looks like during a 5k a 10k a, you know uh at the end of even a 5K, the actual contribution of anaerobic energy to that 18 minutes or whatever they were doing is extremely small. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, but, but we just get tied up in this idea of the anaerobic threshold. I got to build my anaerobic capacity, my anaerobic power. It's just baloney. Uh, but anyway, so but just unfortunately, it is a con- has been a consequence of choice of terms and and some you know historical catch up that we're doing on on ex- understanding and explaining the physiology. But we very quickly confuse the heck out of athletes. Well, and it's not as flashy, I guess, right? I guess that's some of the it's the marketing of you know team sports training or. Um sprint training right like sprinters are the the coolest you know people to watch i guess right really? <laughs> i think so well, but but, e- but even the sprinters the pure sprinters the 100 200 people they do not go into full out 100 percent speed very often right they cannot they do not and they definitely don't want to get locked tied up with a whole lot of you know, uh, a really low muscle pH or, you know, a, a lot of lactate in the, in the vernacular. They are very careful because it quickly destroys their technique. And so uh, the, the really good athletes, what I find is they are extremely careful with uh, or judicious in the way they use that, um, what should I say, that, that push those buttons physiologically. Because yeah. they know that, that it's important, but it is a it is a very costly. It's like the nitrous oxide button you put on the on the the car. It's it, it can help you win the race, but it can also blow up the engine. And it strikes me that that's you know at any type of whether you're you know a marathoner or a sprinter, there's that like it's it's like an differentiation of like those levels, right? And you don't hit that like ten out of ten button or or range very often um and it's like that misconception that like the elites must just be working so hard and they are but it's not the 10 out of 10 button it's i think you know you would agree the 9 out of 10 8 out of 10 7 out of 10 is just a lot of minutes there and then a lot down at the bottom right yeah and i think you bring up a, a good point and that is just understanding what is what do we mean when we say hard versus easy um there's nothing easy about doing a four-hour ride mm-hmm. or a two-hour run it's not easy it's it's work it's it's takes concentration it takes you know discipline and co- discipline to get up and do this so often so regularly so that it's just silly when we tar- start saying well that's easy training and this is the real training and that 
it's just baloney. In fact, I, sometimes it's much easier for me mentally to do a quick interval session than it is to commit to a four-hour ride on an indoor trainer. Sure. Which is what people are having to do right now. So, uh, yeah, I think we need to reframe this idea of easy versus hard. And then, as you say, hard is also the, the, the training stimuli that we create is always an integration of intensity and duration. But we get so caught up in the intensity part of that uh, equation, and we forget that, look, 70% times three hours is a big stimuli mm -hmm. and versus 90% times 30 minutes. You see what I'm just yeah. that, and so and and that's one of the things I believe that, that elite performers have come to understand is that trade off, but also within the hard range, like we were talking about, is yeah, ninety percent times forty minutes is really tough. It's for me it's an eight out of ten, but I can wake up the next day and, and train. Whereas if I go uh, twenty minutes at all out max, you know, I sit with a lot of residual fatigue and, and, and I have trouble mobilizing the next two days. So though they're both hard, but one is hard and sustainable and the other is hard and not sustainable. And it's almost like leaving a few reps in the, in the bank, right? Is, is sort of the strength training yeah, often they absolutely. talk about that. Right. And I see that a lot where, you know, you do a four by eight or you do a four by four or whatever. And, you know, they just like finish it off. Right. And it's sometimes it's like, no, like just the four by four at the, you know, it felt hard. You didn't need to like just annihilate yourself in the last one. That's uh, right. You, you know, and those you can do maybe approaching the race, but it's not, again, you want to, your analogy of doing something the next day is great. And I think, I, and my daughter had to learn this because she is, I always say she carries a big shovel when she goes to, into a hard workout. She's, <laughs> she, she's ready to dig, and and it's a it's a, a wonderful uh, psychological t talent to be able to go deep. I, I, I have all respect for it, but it also is a double edged sword because in the training process, you 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 can't do that every hard session. And so one, that was one of the things, a training mistake she made last season was, you know, the first three months of her last season were going great. Every, all the indicators were good, but then she got uh, greedy and like four by eight sessions, she was running them like a four by four. She was digging so deep. Sure. And she was going so hard that she was hitting numbers like on heart rate and, and that that looked like a four by four workout. And yeah. and you can do it especially when you're young, young and motivated, and or motivated, right? You can do that for a week or a two week or two months, but we're talking years, right? So usually in my research, I have said that look, if you give the athlete the prescription the prescription will put them into the appropriate training zone. You know, four times 16 will put them at, at, the, at just the right under their maximum lactate steady state. Four times eight will put them just above the, the, the second threshold and so forth. And that's usually true. 
but you will occasionally find an athlete, and my daughter was an example, where she just pushed too damn hard, and and so she kind of overdid the prescription. And then I I had to figure this out and put a governor on her, put a you know say well. In your case, we're actually going to use heart rate and say, when you get above this heart rate, you, you bring it down, you, you, you slow down. Yeah. Because we want, we, we, I need you to be able to get up the next morning and, and do the, you know, the 18K easy run. So I wonder, so for your aerobic uh, threshold, so that's that easy, the lower intensity training, we have this idea of decoupling, this idea of sort of not having aerobic drift so people can play around with that, ride at, you know, 65, 75%, see if the power changes. Is there an exercise or an interval or, or some sort of focus that you can give us uh, as, as an exercise while we're all riding the trainer here to play with this idea of the correct intensity that, you know, 9 out of 10, 8 out of 10 versus the 10 out of 10? Yeah, well, at least for the low-intensity runs, the ones that are like at this 65%, you know, I would – a couple of other kind of hacks that get used a lot. One is the talk test which is about as low tech as it gets, but it actually does work because it's connected to ventilation. Right. And that is that you you know, literally just, I don't know, find a passage that you like uh, and read it out loud. You know, yeah. not three words, but three or four sentences and, find, and figure out, can I actually say this without just totally becoming out of breath? Um, and if the answer is yes, then that's a very good sign that you're in the appropriate intensity. If the answer is no, then that's a pretty good sign you're actually closer to, you know, up in your threshold range. So, and, that, and there's research that substantiates that. They, and I guess they, you could they, phone a friend right now, too. I was just going to say, I really hope it's just a bunch of people like spouting off poetry on the treadmill going forward. There you go. Yeah. Well, you know, yesterday I was testing out with a couple of guys uh, that that I've done also podcasts with, and 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 we're test, testing out something called Discord, which is on on Swift on group rides. You can you can talk to each other during the ride using this channel called Discord. Yeah, Molly was saying uh, it was a, big with people playing video games before. So I guess we're all just video game nerds essentially now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, but we I I bought some bone conduction headphones that tolerate sweat and all this and they work great we you know and and we were talking during this pretty tough ride climbing hills and everything and and i thought so now what we're going to do is use this technology then to kind of have ride join group rides and then let people ask questions that's neat yeah and that's why i say to molly that's you know sort of what i miss from training is you know, going on a five-hour ride and just talking to someone for the whole ride. Oh, right? You don't miss that. We did that all of February. I guess and it we seems so like so. It, it seems like so long ago. But. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, so we're going to put this to the test. We're going to we're going to try to be able to talk. Obviously, I'm the old guy, so it's going to be me that probably starts panting and straining first. But but uh, we're going to try to be able to actually talk during the rides and, and discuss training questions and oh, so I forth. I love that. So, so the talk test is one, and then the others have actually used this idea of just breathing through your nose, uh, literally shutting your mouth uh, when you're running. And uh, and if you go way back, um, there's a you have um, Jack Daniels, who's you know a famous coach with a PhD, 
uh, I'm sure you've heard of yep. Daniel's running, running formula of the book. Well, he in, in 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 that book, there's a point where he talks about breathing rhythms, and these different breathing rhythms. We we tend to kind of entrain on cadence in different ways, whether it's uh, two two three two four two. You know, different like how many strides during the, during uh, breathing in and how many strides during exhalation. Yeah. And 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 he was basically saying that certain some of these rhythms will only be usable if you're below your threshold. Gotcha. So that's a testable hypothesis, uh, but it relates to this idea that look, either through the talk test or through breathing through your nose, you can you can use ventilation as a proxy to tell you something about where you are intensity wise mm-hmm. uh, and and particularly the you know are you at this low sustainable aerobic intensity or are you have you passed that first threshold you're starting to hyperventilate and, and so forth so those are some fairly straightforward low-tech methods now when it comes to breathing through your nose, there are people. I've done it. I've done. I've done two-hour rides just breathing through my nose. I can do it. I can go at 200 watts uh, for two hours and never open my mouth. Uh, but I need clear sinuses because <laughs> yeah, if, if I'm, you know, if I don't have clear sinuses, that, that ain't gonna happen. So anyway, so I take it for what it's worth. Give it a try, uh, but then find the right, you know find the right rhythm of, you know, strides on the inhalation, strides on the exhalation. And we, we actually have plans of testing this in the lab, but we've just got to be able to get back in the lab. <laughs> yeah, that's a struggle right now for sure. With the, I don't want to t- keep you too lo- much longer, Stephen, but with the, if someone wanted to, especially right now where, where stress is high from, you know, life, um, but they want to keep going with a little bit of this intensity, um, is there a way right now to sort of, gauge whether someone's hitting that eight or nine out of 10 on the intensity versus the 10 out of 10. I know this seems like it should be obvious, but maybe it's not. Um, like, would you go with just how you feel the next day or how would you go about this if, if someone's, Oh, that's a good, yeah. How would you limit yourself maybe is a better way to answer it or ask it. If I ask, I'm trying to think, I, I think everybody's different, but we all kind of, after a while, we know our own bodies. And so I, in my case, you know, I should be able to kind of get, feel like I can function 45 minutes after the workout um, and not be sick at my stomach, not have diarrhea, not, you know, so I yep, literally, yep. if I, if I go too deep, then I will have intestinal issues. Mm-hmm. I will have, um, uh, my daughter is the same. Uh, we will have problems with appetite, you know? So, uh, whereas if I do something like four times eight, or I did 10 times six minutes the other day, uh, you know, pretty tough workout, but an hour later I'm eating spaghetti and I'm fine because I didn't go too deep in the hole. But if I go over the edge, I get these, you know, I, I get almost, uh, my body is sick. My body is saying, dude, you poisoned me a bit here. Um, yeah, I think that's great listening to your body afterwards. You know, even just the like, I have a few clients crawl up the stairs occasionally. And so, uh, you know, again, if, if that's not the goal at this phase of the year, then, you know, maybe not uh, 
having that, you know, have to like roll off the trainer and crawl upstairs? Yeah, right now, I, if I'm coaching, I would be telling people, look, now is not the time for epic workouts. Yeah, yeah, save those for future. We're gonna, we'll, yeah, we're gonna keep the powder dry, and we're gonna build build some basic fitness, and then we're gonna save that for later. Awesome, uh, Stephen. Thank you so much for your time. Um, so you're on Twitter. You're active there. Is that the best place for people to look if they want to, you know, follow along with workouts you're sort of proposing, or when you're looking for, you know, people to uh, contribute to research or, or different things you're looking at? Um, Twitter's the best. Yeah, spot. yeah. Like right now, I've got a study going on with some cyclists. I've got about, I think, uh, maybe it'll end up being 50, 60, 70 cyclists that are comparing four-hour rides with two times two-hour on the same day okay. and we're looking at responses to a, in other words, a single long session versus two shorter sessions. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out some workflow for doing projects this way and it's, it's working and, and, and the Corona crisis has kind of just pushed this into high gear. Nice. So Twitter, Twitter, I, I've got a YouTube channel where I, I'm starting to put out some short videos on different topics. Uh, and then as, as far as the research, the, the foundational research, that's on something called ResearchGate. Perfect. And we'll link to those three then. Uh, on Twitter, in case people are, are looking at their phones right now, what's your Twitter handle? Just Steven Seiler. S-T-E-P-H-E-N. Awesome. S-E-I-L-E-R. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. As as always, it was awesome chatting with you. We we should probably not go this long uh, without catching up with you again. No, it's well. Thanks. Uh, I enjoy the chat, and uh, I wish all of you and your listeners uh, good health, and that we get all through this as best possible. Yes, absolutely. Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll see you on Zwift. This might be what it takes yeah. to get yeah. Peter on there. Maybe you'll be, you'll cycle cycle past it. <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. While you still have your podcast app open, do us a huge favor, head over to iTunes or whatever app you're listening in and rate and review the podcast. It's super helpful. It, you know, gets us more guests on the show. It gets me a dog. Um, and it's just, you know, a good way to give back if we've provided any kind of value to you throughout all of the episodes you've listened to. If you're looking for the show notes, you can find those at www.consummateathlete.com. We have lots of other content over there and any information about coaching or events can also be found at that same website. And you can find us on the social medias at Molly J. Herford and at Peter Glassford on Twitter and Instagram. And we would love to hear from you. Thanks so much. And we will see you next week. <laughs>